Hello and welcome to The Movable, a podcast dedicated to interviewing individuals involved in building manufacturing. I'm your host, Jared Dory. Please enjoy. Thanks for taking the time, Bruce. Appreciate it. Maybe uh, could you just tell me a little bit about Clawson Industries, kind of what you guys do and maybe how you started and your role in all of it? Well, if we go way back to Oh, which was it? 98, 1998, maybe. I had some friends and one or two of my brothers. They would be, do a little bit of evening shift work for Savage Seal, welding for them. And my some of my friends, they took started doing that more at home and started building calf shelters and wind fences. And Savage Seal would sell them pipe and welding wire and the paint. So... I worked for my friend then when I was 15, welding wind fences and cap shelters, and I was quite interested in it, and he knew that. So a year or two later, when he was uh, getting too busy, he just let me take over everything when I was 16. At 16, I don't know if I was old enough to look after things, so my older brother helped me, and we ran it as a winter thing for several years. Just me and my two brothers, and sometimes we'd hire one person to help. Sometimes we'd do work in the evenings. Uh, we had no set structure. We just did whatever worked. So I do a little bit every year. Then in 2008, we decided to make it a real part of our living. So we rented a shop and we just struck out and started building to see what would happen. And you'd build something and a farmer would say, hey, I like that. What about changing it to this or changing it to that? And we would say, sure, we can change it. So some of our products started small. And according to customers, whatever they asked for, we just built a little bigger, a little bigger. and. Yeah, just following whatever the customers are asking for. Right, right. So that Stampede Steel, are they still in business? Where are they located? They were located out of Linden, Alberta, and we just lived a mile away from them. Oh, yeah. And the owner at that time actually lived quite close to us. They have kind of changed hands a time or two. And they're still operating, but I don't know how effectively or if they will continue or not. So we chose the color of paint quite close, similar to Stampede Seal, because that's what we're using. But we changed it because we didn't want to end up in the future all of a sudden running competition with the same color of paint. So it's similar, but it's not the same. I see. Yeah. Oh, interesting. It's kind of interesting. You talk with different people and like some people say like stick in an industry for a long time. You started at 15 and you're still doing it. That's really, really fascinating to hear that. It's really neat. So probably for you and I, like the whole freestanding panel and modular cattle equipment are being built out of oil field pipe is kind of just so normal to us being from Alberta, but it's not normal everywhere. And since I've moved to the States, you know, I obviously still interested in it and talking with different people and talk with some people in Texas, North Dakota and I ended up talking to a guy in Texas and I said, did you guys invent these? Like did Texas event the freestanding panel, like this whole principle of building this movable cattle equipment out of oil pipe? And we know how great of a product it is. And he's like, oh no, we were up in Alberta and saw it. And I mean, I essentially grew up with it. You'd be a little older than me, but like to me, it was just normal. But I've come to find out that I think Alberta or maybe Saskatchewan is the origins of it. Like it was created, I think, in Alberta. Like the whole concept of 
everything being on skids or on, you know, above ground, not set in the ground. Because a lot of that oil pipe in Texas is permanent fencing put in the ground. And they've adopted, you know, the whole idea from, I think, Alberta, which is kind of fascinating. So maybe you are one of the first people to build with it. I, I, I don't know. I don't remember growing up having a lot of portable stuff around. Some of the, the first things we started using would have been the wind fences. And the first portable panel I built, I know I used a design that didn't work because I had welded sucker rods uh, in between the operates. And when the panel was finished, yeah, it should have worked. But I don't... Now, we very seldom weld sucker rods because we don't believe that it's strong enough. Right. So I had welded all the sucker rods on. Yeah, it worked good for, you know, the first six months or whatever, but minus 40 and we started moving that thing around and it didn't work quite so good. They started breaking off. Right. And I guess I was lucky to have a, a family farm that we could try out these things and see if they worked or not. Right. Yeah. It is interesting. Sucker rod's a good product, but there's something about like the actual material of it. It's it's hardened or something. It's more towards cast iron because it seems like the weld will actually tear out the weld will be plenty good, but it'll actually like tear out of the parent material or the the rod itself. Anyway, so I have thinking about you kind of starting into the business at such a young age. Do you feel advantaged or disadvantaged with that at times? Or is it just a neutral thing? Was it a good thing or a bad thing? Probably a good thing. Um, I've always felt like I was younger and reaching reaching up to something maybe it was just above my reach. And I still feel that way, that I'm just this young guy and everybody else in business is older than me. And I'm starting to realize, you know what? It's yeah. Maybe I'm older than that already. And a lot right. of guys in business are younger than me. But I, business has enthused me yeah, since I was a teenager, even before that. Any, any type of business is just the, the part of attracting customers and interacting with them and that sort of thing. Right, right. So when we started, you know, we, we started in 2017, but really didn't get traction maybe till 2019. I'd had a few conversations with you about more of the technical building side, you know, saws to use and different equipment and methodologies. And that was very helpful. And I think one thing I remember is, you know, even though I grew up just down the road from where your operation is now, but had never really been there, but it's, like, I, I guess from talking with you, one of the things that kind of stood out was quality. Like, you weren't interested in just getting product out there. Like, you did, you had a desire for it to work and to stand up to what, pe- what the customer's expectations were. Do you, if you're hiring or whatever you're doing, is it kind of a common topic to talk about quality within your shop? Or, or how is it talked about? Or how do you, how do you make that a... Um, kind of a, a foundational component of the shop? That's a good question. I'm not even sure. There is numerous times we've told a person like, you know, this this is a quality issue here. And if it takes you an extra hour or two, that's fine. We'd rather have it done right. And then sometimes we get a few people, maybe a supervisor who's working so hard on efficiency that they're just pushing to get things done. And then the quality would slip a bit. <laughs> and so it's a continual effort to try and keep our quality up. Right now, our, some of our sales are exactly with panels. We don't know if there's a future in it for us to build panels anymore. The quality and the way we've built them, there's too many people that are selling them cheaper than we are. So two, three years ago here, we started a cheaper line of panels that were definitely cheaper. And they were cheaper built. 
And we've sold a few. I don't know if this is why, but I think that people see us as quality. So if they're coming to us, they don't have any desire for that cheaper paddle. So it doesn't hardly sell because people don't, it's what I hope, when people see our name, to them, that's the same thing as quality. So if they're coming to us, they wouldn't even want to buy something that cheap. Right. Yeah, that is interesting. We have found that there's customers that it's almost part of their culture, you know, their their little personal bubble of, of culture or just the principles that they operate in their life that they just want it cheap. And they almost want to be able to tell people that they got such a good deal. And then there's customers of the exact opposite that they don't want the hassle of buying something cheap. They want someone who can provide quality service, back it up and pay a bit more kind of as a even, you know, insurance from them having to deal with the potential repercussions of a cheap product. And so it's kind of interesting how you you get this, like you're almost talking about, there's people that are eliminating themselves as customers because they're so price sensitive. They don't really don't care about maybe the product as much. It's more about the price. And if you can eliminate those, in my mind, it's almost a good thing because uh, some of those customers that are super price sensitive can be difficult customers sometimes too. I don't know if that's your experience that sometimes you're like, oh, that's okay that people are going a different direction because they're not our ideal customer. Yes, we have experienced that. And I'm not trying to turn customers away, but specifically a grazing association, like a community pasture, if they would come asking us for panels, yep, we have done some larger setups where we put in 50 pens or 20 pens, I don't know how many, and alleyways. And maybe we've even welded the panels together when we're finished so that they aren't going to move around. But typically, I would tell those people that what we have is probably overpriced for them. They're going to use these panels a couple times a year. They're probably going to want to go find something cheaper. And we'll quote on it if they want, but most people don't go with us if if they're really price conscious. And we have run into that where there's some people that are really, really price conscious. And I I would try hard to work with those people, but it's probably more stress than it's worth. Yeah. Well, you also, like, it's not even, I guess, good or bad customers, but like you just said, they're a grazing association where there's two times a year, they use those panels and then they just sit versus maybe a feedlot or someone where they're processing animals weekly or almost every day, it's actually going to be cheaper than for, for the feedlot to buy more expensive panels because if they're having to repair all the time. So it's kind of, yeah, who your customer is. It's not necessarily good or bad, but it's just reality at times for sure. So you started with calf shelters was one of your first products. And so that's kind of a structure of sorts. And then over time, you've built bigger kind of lean-to structures and then even into barns. And I mean, I look at your open barn and your calving barns and your horse barns. To me, they're very impressive aesthetically. Like I think they look good, but functionality. How going from those small calf shelters to barns, is there much of a transition in how you sell it, how you build it? Even though they are both buildings, there'd be obviously a little bit of on-site work with a barn versus a calf shelter. But like how, how different is it? Like, has it been a big change in how you operate to be able to facilitate a barn versus just a regular smaller lean-to? Right now, we just about think of it as two separate businesses, the barns versus the rest of the stuff we build. But as we were growing, like our first calf shelter was eight feet wide. You know, then somebody wanted 
a 12 foot wide one and then somebody wanted a 10 foot wide one and then somebody wanted 15 foot wide. So then we got into using a pilot vehicle and then somebody said, well, can you push two of those 15 foots together? And so then we went to, I think you've done that where you have an awning that flips up. We did a few of those and then we tried a cap that went on top and, and each guy says, can you do this one more thing? Can you do this one more thing? So I don't know how far we'll go. Our largest barns right now are 36 feet wide by 48 feet long, and we can stack them end to end so we can be up to 96 feet long. But we're getting more and more people wishing for a 60 foot long one instead of just 48. Now, oh, interesting. we would have to do make a few changes in our shop and we'd have to you know buy a longer trailer. And then we'd have to see if we're even allowed to haul that length down the highway. So yeah, there is a difference with smaller products, specifically calf shelters and wind fences. Some customers are okay waiting for a month for them, but a lot of them, a lot of farmers wait till it snows and then they want a calf shelter tomorrow. So we try to keep some on hand. When it comes to a calving barn, most people are willing to wait two, three, four months because there's no other option they can get that'll be faster than that anyway. Also, the price difference is a lot of people that are actually financing their barn, whereas not much of the other stuff gets financed. So then there's a bit of a waiting time there. If somebody says, yes, I'm going to try for it, I'll go get financed and come back to you. Right, right. So because you kind of look at, you have your kind of your cattle equipment and then your larger buildings, the cattle barn or the the barns and whether it be for horses or cattle or equipment or whatever it is, do you, when you employ people in the shop, do they kind of get employed for barns specifically or specifically for cattle equipment or is it kind of on and as needed? They're able to float back and forth. Right now, it's everybody works on everything. Well, kind of. We keep our welders separate from our, we call them our finishers. The people that do wood and tin are very few of them have welding experience. And for the most part, our welders, we keep them away from the wood and tin because it's just different. We'll have a couple of people that go back and forth. Uh, just before COVID hit or right around the COVID time, we were running two shops. Like we had, we had one rented there uh, 15 miles from us. And then we specifically had one shop just doing barns and that's all we did. And then within COVID and inflation, we actually realized we weren't charging enough and we were going backwards. So we shut the other shop down and, and uh, got quite a bit smaller until we were certain that we were uh, profitable again. Yeah. The, was that just prices fluctuating so much on raw materials and maybe wages? It, it was, I think it was kind of challenging for everyone. It was a bit of a wild ride. So with each individual in the shop, you've got welders, finishers. What about the painting? Because I know that you paint some of your product. Is there people that kind of specialize in that or the finishers do that? Or We put that under finishers. Now, for a while, we had just anybody would do it. Nobody really enjoyed it. And we got to a point where kind of the newest guy would just be shoved into that operation. And we've never taken a lot of pride in painting our product. Lots and lots of people don't bother painting their product, especially if it's cattle equipment. And so we're painting them. We've never, you know, tried to have a finish like a brand new vehicle. We've just slapped the paint on and go. We have been changing that slowly. And now, you know, we like to get a real good guy on the painter, try not to have any drips, try not to have any missed spots. It's still nothing like a, a paint job on a vehicle, but we're better than we used to be. Right, right. I find it like I, the thought of painting, I mean, you saw our product 
which is something that you don't really want to admit, but I guess you get ideas consciously or subconsciously from other product. But our product is extraordinarily similar to yours. I think we copied a lot of what your, at least your original calf shelters were. Yeah, maybe that's not something I should be readily admitting. But anyway, you've had a pretty big influence on us, whether that's cheating or not, I'm not sure. But painting has been kind of a a fear of ours, trying to stay away from it because, well, I think it is one of those things that is probably a trade of its own and that you need, it takes some time. And you, where we're at, there's definitely like a lot of, I think a lot of regulation around painting. And so uh, we've been just a little bit nervous to do it. And so far we've pulled off not doing it. But I very much understand that what you're saying about like some roles, you kind of just like, oh, the new guy, just go and do that. And instead of making it like, hey, this is very important and making it formal and having someone qualified, which kind of reminds me, there's a shop just down the road from us. We went and toured it the other day. It used to be Can-Am Steel and then Sun Steel purchased it. Anyway, they build huge structural packages for stadiums, hospitals, like very large projects. And so all of what they do is steel. They're doing the steel package for these projects. Someone else assembles it on site, a different contractor does, but they're responsible for the blueprints of their product and then having it in a form that it can be assembled. I think there's like 180 welders or not welders, just total employees, you know, between CNC operators, welders, fitters. And it was kind of funny talking with them they had had, you know, and maybe it was years ago, but similar issues where their fitters versus the welders, like one job would be more esteemed than the other. And then they had issues with everyone wanting to be a fitter. And even though our shop is so much smaller, we had the same thing. Like everyone's end goal was to be a welder. And we realized that we needed to make a change in how we viewed like each part of the process is just as important you can't necessarily put one above the other. And so it sounds like you've even, that's kind of a something that you've run into where yes. different parts of the process are esteemed more than others and really they shouldn't be, but it happens sometimes. We still struggle with that a bit. And it's maybe internally or management as much as anybody, we view the welders as more important than the finishers. And it actually, I think their finishers can feel that if there's a problem anywhere they're the ones that are supposed to make the final product look pretty. So if there's a problem, it's always, oh, the finishers didn't do a good enough job. And sometimes that's the case, but not always. There has been numerous times where maybe the welders haven't got, you know, maybe they've made something crooked and the finishers can't hardly correct it because the structure was built crooked to begin with or one piece, one, one piece somewhere. And it's probably a constant battle. The other thing is in Alberta here, welding is a mandatory trade. They have to go to school for it and carpentry isn't. So we offer our carpenters the option to go to school and we'll pay them more if they want to get their ticket for carpentry. And we're hoping some people will, but so far they just haven't, uh, you know, there's no push from the government to make sure they do it. Interesting. Interesting. So as far as like training on your product, something that I've struggled with because we're just getting around to like, whenever we had a new hire, we'd have quality issues. And so you kind of start looking at each other as management, like, what are we doing wrong? And then you start realizing, well, we're really not giving our foreman or whatever a plan for training. Like, you are you can select an individual to follow. It's this many hours of training. I think pro- everyone catches on to product at a different pace and whatever. Is 
Can you speak to any of that in the shop, in your shop? Like, is there a formal kind of training policy or how do you ensure that new hires, that quality remains the same, you know, this sort of thing? That's one thing we still struggle with. And we don't have a formal training plan. It's been something I've been enthused with the last six months or year, maybe, is maybe motivating that employee to want to do a good job. So I just changed up our plans on how we hire somebody. Our first day on the job, we'll probably take them out for a meal. We'll bring coffee break, a hot coffee break in for everybody that day a new employee starts. We give him a hat with a logo on the first day, make sure he's got a, a clean locker that's actually got an air freshener in it and try and make his first day memorable so that uh, right off the bat, he's enthused about his job. Sure. And not make it, I think something that I've made the mistake of in the past, I'm like, feel like everything should have been done yesterday. So if someone starts, I'm just like talking a million miles an hour. And you forget that you've been living what you're doing for years. And this is like the first time that they're being immersed in it. And so I think it's kind of, you can set people up for failure if you don't methodically enter in. So I like that idea of like having kind of a, a welcome that's not just here, do this, this, and this, and then run yeah. off. So studying um, up on a little bit, a simple thing as as telling the employee where to park on his first day. So it's not really a big issue, but uh, one of our last new hires, he parked in front of the office where all our, our uh, office staff park, and nobody cares. He can park there for three days or two weeks before he parks with the rest. It doesn't matter to us. But how is that employee going to feel? Is it going to make him feel a little bit ashamed that he didn't catch on? So to try and make him comfortable with just, you know, the first day orientation, tell him that's where we typically park. Just he doesn't have to ask the question then. It's all part of trying to make him feel comfortable and enthused with his job. I'm going to add that to our starting package. <laughs> that's, I, you know, because you think of these shops, there's so many places to park. You just could park anywhere. You, just, you, you need the space or usually a lot of room to that. That's really fascinating. I never thought of that. And it could be an issue. I mean, you could drive over it with a big piece of equipment. So talking a little bit more about the barns, well, maybe not even so much about the barns, but just some of the tools that you use. One particular, the CNC. I remember talking about your CNC rotary plasma or tube cutter, or whatever you call it. And I remember that you guys kind of built it with someone else or like it wasn't something you just ordered and showed up ready to use. Is that correct? And has that changed since? We're still using the same one. And that is correct. I called this fellow that I've heard of. He's definitely younger than me by ways. And his his older brother had built numerous CNCs for people. And I called him and I said, we need a tool to drill four one-inch holes at the same time through the pipe. So in my mind, I was going four drill presses hooked up with a hydraulic cylinder to to feed, down feed. Uh, he didn't want to entertain that thought. He's like, you got to go a step farther, he says. Well, I didn't think I had piles of money to spend, but when he started talking of what he could do, we went for it and we spent maybe 40000 on a, the CNC that was small enough to fit into our tight shop. We told him about how much space we had and he worked with that to design something. At that time, I think if we had gone and, and just bought one at an industrial shop in the city, we would have probably paid 250000 this machine isn't perfect. We would try to be within an eighth of an inch, but the cuts aren't necessarily any more accurate than that. It's a vital part of our operation. So we've often tried to have it be a week ahead, ahead of everything else. And most of that works, but here uh, about a month ago, they were running it just a day ahead. 
half a day ahead or a day ahead. And I told him, that's not going to work. We got to get that thing farther ahead. And it was the next day it broke down. And we had to ship parts out of uh, maybe Wisconsin or somewhere. And well, we actually thought we had a, we had spare parts on hand because we tried to have almost every single part on hand for it. And our spare part didn't work. I don't know if it was a model number motor or something. So then we try to keep spare parts on hand because it's, we'd have a hard time working without it. We can coat pipes by hand. It's been done, but it's just more efficient and more accurate. Yeah. So do you have to kind of reconfigure or tune the machine on an annual basis or anything? Like, does it start getting sloppier as time goes on, on as more usage or? Yeah, it's a continual thing. We've had some operators who run it as a machine and don't really look after it or be careful with it. And the next operator treats it more like a, another person or another an animal. And you just keep the thing clean and greased up and and it works just far better with a decent amount of maintenance and just paying attention to it. And I blame that a lot on on being a custom-built machine. It's If we got an industrial machine, machine and paid 10 times the price, might not need quite that care and attention. Right. In 2020, we started looking for a, a rotary plasma, tube plasma. And I found one out of Texas that was more reasonably priced. And, and the guy that we buy pipe from, he said, well, you need to get in touch with this fellow in Minnesota. He's bought one and I think it works good for him. So I called him and the machine comes out. Well, it used to come out of upstate New York. So we ended up ordering one. And it was very reasonably priced. And I asked the guy, I said, why are you so much cheaper than everyone else? He's like, oh, I just don't provide any service, but kind of explained, you know, that it's not overly complicated, whatever. So some of the issues with some of the generic, like big name machines is with the oil field pipe in particular, their rollers can get gummed up. And so they actually, well, anyway, there can be some problems, which the pipe we buy is really clean. But anyway, the fellow that we bought it from, he was... I think he's smart, but he was his service was terrible. I mean, it was so bad. You could only email him. But we got it up and running and it ran well. And we have had a few minor hiccups until this year. We've had some major breakdowns. And so we've been able to at least order parts from him. But it's funny you said that you had that. We kind of operate on the same thing. Like you want to be at least a week ahead with it. And we came to the point where we broke down in the local computer shop. They had helped us in the past. They couldn't figure it out. And I started calling all of our major steel processors that run really big CNC equipment and you know supply the region with raw steel. And they'll process steel too. And through that, I found a fellow who's about five hours from our shop. And he is he's been just the best thing for us. He came, the machine is cutting, like it's brand new. Like we didn't really know. We just like just running the machine and one of our guys is like this is how it was cutting when it was new like the everything's better and so this fellow even told us that he would build a machine with us if we wanted to make a change or whatever so having those type of people when you find them it's it's so nice that they under like we just don't fully understand you know the software and the hardware we kind of we understand the mechanical part because we can see it and figure it out but the rest of it it's like we had a servo motor go down and we replaced it, but we didn't understand we needed to reconfigure that motor. And and then once you got into it, everything needed to be kind of reconfigured. Our cuts were sloppy and whatever. So it feels kind of euphoric to have his contact now because he, I mean, 
it just changes everything because it's everyone in the shop is stressed if that machine breaks down. Like, every, and it's a concern if it will break down, not even if it happens. And so that's been a huge sigh of relief to have him. He's just such an expert. There's nothing he doesn't understand about it, which is so helpful. <laughs> so when you deliver a barn on site, can you talk a little bit about the process of the customer ordering the barn, building it, and then delivering it? Kind of like yeah. those stages, how everything comes together? So not always, but often a customer will look at a barn before he orders it. I guess they don't always. Sometimes they'll order one without actually looking at it. We'll often put somebody in touch with one closer to them. We've delivered up to 10 or 12 hours drive away from us. And so some guys say, I want to look at a barn. They don't feel like driving five hours. And so we'll call a customer closer to them and say, hey, somebody wants to look at your barn. Ordering, we ask for 50% down to order a barn. We charge extra for changing the tin color. Mostly our barns are all uh, configured by the customer. How many gates they want, whether they want it set up for partially horses, only horses, partially cattle, only cattle, or just completely storage, they can be configured any different way. Once we get a, a signed paper from the customer and his deposit on that barn, that's when we actually start ordering materials for it. And it gets put in the queue. Calving season being in early spring or late winter, that's when the time when it starts getting to be guys are like, I need it by exactly the 10th of the month because I'm going to start calving. The rest of the year, timing is not usually a big issue. But we lost a sale this year a month ago on a barn because if we could have had it guaranteed to have it by February 10th or whatever it was, by I don't know what the date was, they would have taken it. But we were about two weeks built up to uh, too many orders in front of us. So we couldn't promise it. Turns out we probably could have done it, but we weren't able to promise it. So we'd lost that sale. We will touch base with the customer when the barn's you know completely f- completed or almost completed and set up a date for delivery. We run two pilot vehicles because we're twelve we're eighteen feet wide, which it's a pain, but we'll get our permits. We'll bring the first barn. Usually it's a two day process unless it's real close. The next day we'll bring the next barn, the next half, and we tell them they have to have a level pad for us and they have to have a skid steer or a tractor on site to help move it into place. it's We've done it with pickups before, just dragging them into place, and it's possible, but it works much better with a skid steer tractor or something like that. We do absolutely as much as possible ahead of time. Our setup time, once we have both barn halves on site, would be from about two hours to, sometimes it'll take six hours, but that's not normal. Usually two to four hours just to get it put together, put the ridge cap on. And we used to build them and we'd build a half a barn, deliver it, if we were in a panic and the other half went to be ready and would finish it the same day the first half was going out. That gave us more quality control issues. Now we set every barn up on site. I mean, every barn up at our yard and actually check to make sure the doors are set. So they seal properly, make sure everything's good. And then we split that barn. And then, well, no, before we split it, we actually make sure we have two people, usually myself or the salesperson and the shop foreman actually walk around the shop with a pen and a clipboard and check for anything. I've said there's probably 200 different things that make these barns look good. And it's just to be expected that one or four or 10 different things are going to be missed. It might only be a five minute thing to correct. One of the things is our tin supplier, they always tape a cover onto the stack of tin. Well, all our barns when they're finished have a few pieces of tin that have tape sticking onto them. It's not a big issue, but 
it's something that we don't want to send out to a customer with tape sticking on the roof, on the ceiling. So we've got that and we'll just check, make sure. And yeah, oftentimes it gets forgotten because it's such a small thing. There's lots of times they'll be drilling just filings from putting screws in and stuff like that. And if the doors were built laying down and then there's high humidity or rain overnight, they'll get a bit of rust covered on the tin itself. So we'll be like, oh, we just got to pressure wash that down or just take a rag. Lots of these small things that that we feel if we're charging up to 70000 for a barn, we need to make that barn look where the customer's happy with it. Sure, the customer could do that himself. But then one of our struggles has been once we're on site, then we want to pick the other half of the checkup for the barn or e-transfer, whatever it is. Blame it on farmers maybe being busy. They'll be like, oh, I'm not home that day. I'll send you a check in the mail. Well, 80% of the time that works really well. 20% of the time, maybe you get a guy who maybe doesn't pay or hopes to push it off for six months yet. And that has been a, a bit of an issue for us. None of us like asking for a check when the job is done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's funny you say that. We have had two customers, not real huge customers. I mean, I think the one was a substantial amount, but they just didn't pay. And, and the one, I think it was actually quite purposeful. But after that, we've changed our policy that it's completed. And before we load and deliver, you pay in full. But we have like a 72-hour guarantee. If there's one thing you don't like, we take it back. No one's ever taken us up on the taking it back. And we did have one lady. She didn't really tell us that she was concerned, but she actually went onto Facebook and was like, I'm kind of, I don't know how, I guess, commenting on our posts. Like, I've ordered a barn or a shed and they want to be paid in full before I get it. And I've just, you know, never done this before, kind of worried. And fortunately, like some of our previous customers stepped in and said, you know, the, it's all good. But to my knowledge, that's the only lady that was concerned. And I, you know, we're in a fairly, we're going into some populated areas. I mean, it's just impossible to track money down from some of these people. And they're, you know, they're not in an industry, they're just an end consumer. So I know when I had talked to you a number of years ago, you had worked with an engineer because maybe you had done a garage or something for someone and permitting was required. Do you still run into that where county permitting they they're wanting to see engineering or most of the kind of egg exempt there's only a few where we've run into that cities maybe a commercial so in a commercial setting inside the town limits something like that is where we've needed uh, a stamp from an engineer so years back we had this young engineer who was farming with his dad and he said he came to buy our product because he liked the way we designed it so like, oh, you're an engineer. Like, you know, we might need one in the future. And so he's gone through um, a lot of our barn designs and approved them for us. If we're going to sell to a commercial project, we would definitely charge extra. And there's this one, I think only one difference we make, and that is we make the roof a lot stronger for snow load. We don't know if any of ours have ever had an issue ever. But if it's engineered, that one change has to be made. So I know that I think you use three and a half inch outside diameter well casing for your barns, or that's what I read. Is that schedule 80? Like that's got a heavy wall, a quarter inch wall on that pipe? Yes, that is a, about a quarter inch wall. That's probably the biggest thing. We One of the biggest things, lots of people have tried to copy our barn. There's a few of them out there that have got similar to ours, but... I don't know if there's any that are 
using three and a half. They all want to use two and seven eighths and it's, it's similar in price. So yes, it's a bit more of a pain to work with in the shop. It's we end up doing more with the telehandler and, and less, less by hand, but we, uh, we've flipped numerous of these barns before they're set up. They act like a giant kite. So if you have them facing in the wind, they'll roll, they'll fly in the air. Uh, we had one that tipped off of a trailer. Uh, that was back when we used a ball hitch, like a gooseneck hitch. It broke the gooseneck hitch and it flew into the ditch. Well, we replaced all the tin and kept on going. It was just a cosmetic issues. That has a few times we've heard some of the strapping of the rafters. We've learned now that if you have a barn half and it's not set up with another one, you make sure it's, uh, you know, you just park a vehicle inside it or something to keep it from, from blowing around. But yeah, the three and a half inch, we built a garage some years back. Uh, and I thought it was going to be a real great seller. And we used all brand new material. Had the engineer go over it ahead of time and tell us what, how to design it. And I couldn't hardly sell that garage. But if we had built that garage at a three and a half inch, it would have been just as cheap. And it would have been, I'm just going to guess, four times stronger. And we probably would have sold it much faster. Interesting. So is that people consciously think it's stronger and better? Or do you think it's like how the size of the material just looks better to them? Oh, no, it is much stronger. Like our barns, we could probably drag them 10 miles down the road. And we I don't know if we'd have any issue with them. They're, they're designed to hook onto the tractor and drive. Whereas if we were using brand new steel, you'd never get that strong steel without spending yeah. a small fortune. Yeah, yeah. That was going to be my next question. Like, well, I know up in Canada, but down in the States, there's a lot of like manufacturers of carports and different things. And they use like the thinnest gauge tubing, but it's kind of a bolt together kit. And I, I, I think obviously they buy in large quantity, but it's also probably speed of assembly. Like they're using square surfaces and, and whatever. But anyway, it's kind of a kit. It doesn't kind of a little different product. But have you ever been tempted to go to like square tube or something for the purpose of having a flat surface versus the round? I mean, round is, it looks nice and it's very strong. Or has it always just been cost prohibitive for what you're doing or not the right look? Or have you ever been tempted to go down that road though? The grads we built, that is what we did. We went with uh, all square tubing and angle iron. We do use a little bit of square tubing and angle iron on our products. There's a few spots, specifically the doors on our barns are made out of square tubing. And that is why it's just, we used to make them out of round, but when you're fastening tin onto it and wood onto it, it's just made more sense to go with square tubing. Mostly it's cost prohibitive. If we're, we've talked about numerous times of switching all our gates over to square tubing, and that would be only because of supply issues. Our one inch, one and an eighth inch pipe we use, sometimes we have a hard time finding a supply of used pipe. We have ordered, once we ordered a, a sea can out of China, and the the prices were pretty close to what we were paying here. The biggest downfall, we had was a six-month lead time to get it here. Yeah, interesting. So um, for you personally, and maybe the business as a whole, obviously we gravitate towards certain components of a business, like we enjoy them more. You're selling all your own product that you're manufacturing or at least that's how I understand it. So you kind of have a marketing and sales processes. You have your manufacturing process and then maybe kind of a 
materials and logistics. I don't, I don't know if this is how you think about it, but these different departments or components of the business, is there, I mean, finance would be maybe another one. Do you gravitate to like production more or sales more, want to fill the others in with people that are competent or like, do you have a natural gravitation towards one part of the business product development? I always think of myself as a production person. And part of the reason where I found that when, even if I'm in the office, I think of production. So when I'm purchasing, I would always overpurchase. And just to make sure that we never lost efficiency in the shop because I hadn't ordered enough of this product or that product. Several years back when Cole Gold started working for us, that was what he started with was material management. And I can't remember, but I'm going to guess it in six months, maybe it was one year, he dropped our inventory value in half without causing any issue in the shop just simply because he was paying attention to it and he he wasn't a production that wasn't his uh his thing so that's where i try to get somebody working with inventory that's not a production person like myself interesting yeah because your focus is production i mean it is the right it's the right priority because production affects the customer if you have a bunch of inventory well i mean if it gets way out of hand i guess it'll affect the customer but you're worried about taking care of the customer when you're concerned about production. If you've got extra inventory, customer doesn't care. That's very interesting. Yeah, that that would happen. I enjoy sales. And you could say I'm a good salesman or I'm a bad, however you want to look at it. I can sell stuff and I know how to sell stuff. You just drop your price and it'll sell. And too often I've done that. A customer comes up, boy, I'd like that. And uh, you know, he's like, can you drop your price a little bit? I have a very hard time saying, no, I can't drop my price. So for that reason, I try not to be the one to uh, to be purchasing products or selling the products. I'll rather step back and let somebody else be the point man on some of that stuff because it works better than if I do it. I uh, I wonder if that's kind of a uh, ownership flaw with sales because I- I've read sales books. Like I think I can sell. I think I understand people. But I would do the same thing. Someone would call and I would start trying to make accommodations for them really for no reason. And when we hired someone to actually sell, they just got their instructions and like, this is what it is. And the customers, I think, actually bought more because they didn't feel like like there was a structure that the customer had to follow. And if they didn't fall in, well, then don't, you know, they're already calling about it. They kind of like the product. And so I had the same thing. I'd be talking myself into things that we shouldn't be doing or prices that we shouldn't be selling at just because I kind of understood the entire process. I don't really know why. <laughs> it's kind of a quandary, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I think it's kind of a generic understanding. And and maybe too, when you first start, it's kind of uh, you're in famine. So just anything to get someone in the door. And I think that desperation can be actually counterproductive too. The, the customer wants. That's one thing we've learned. I've learned through the years. When we first started, it was famine. And we would have dropped our products, some of them, below our cost easily because we're so desperate to make a sale. Now when a customer comes around and is looking for something, I don't try to put any pressure on him. If he's looking at a barn, maybe he'll buy one in two or three years. And I'm just thankful that he's given me the chance to show him our barn. And we don't know if he'll come back or not, but if he does, if it's in three years from now, we're waiting and we're ready for it. It doesn't have to be today. Yeah. Do you think you and I the other day had talked about marketing and acquiring customers and kind of brand? Do you think that like when you talk about maybe days of more famine like that that is really just an exposure thing? Like you have a good product, just people don't know about it more than anything? Or or in your experience, is that 
more or less, like not as many people knew about you when you first started out. So it was harder to sell because there's just less customers to even recognize who you were as a business. That was right when we started. Yes. But right now we still struggle with that. In the winter now, we've got work and uh, we don't stress too much. Summertime comes and we're almost always slow as could be in summertime. By far, the majority of our work is for agriculture customers. And summertime, they're worried about their crops. They're thinking of harvest and spraying and seeding and maybe going to the lake. And the cattle are mostly put on the back burner or maybe they're out to pasture. So we've been working lately trying to figure out how we can fill up our summers so as we don't have quite this feast or famine every single year in a cycle. Yeah, I, I, we've had the same thing. Our cycle has been in the past, like fall, all of our, I mean, our customers aren't, I wouldn't really call them agriculture. I'd call them, you know, hobby or, you know, kind of farmstead, kind of the homesteaders and uh, horse owners. And everyone's kind of panicking for winter. Like, oh, winter's coming. It's going to be kind of rainy and cold and snowy. And so we'll get this push, you know, September might be like our biggest sales month or whatever. And so we've had a very conscious, like, how do we change that? One of the things that naturally changed for us is when we offered a bit, of course, we don't do the equipment like you, but when we offered a bigger product, you got people planning in the winter or spring to take delivery months down the road. And we started a kind of the end of for like quarter two is always really slow for us in the end of spring, beginning of summer. And we started doing like a uh, an extra delivery promotion where we would reach out to those customers that are out of our delivery radius or a free delivery radius. And so that's kind of helped a little bit with like getting people to think about it before the fall rush. And so we've evened our seasons out a little bit. And another thing that we've done, of course, Black Friday is a big thing in the States and maybe it's kind of become that way in Canada. What It's Boxing Day in Canada. But we do like, so we're really busy Black Friday filling all of our fall orders and getting them in before, I mean, winter's kind of hit in a lot of regions, but we use that as a way to pre-sell. So we'll say, if you order now and take delivery in the spring, we're giving you a Black Friday deal. And it won't even necessarily be money off. It'll be like a free upgrade or something like that. And that has been really nice because quarter three and four are busiest and quarter two and quarter one, aside from the planners that are like, hey, I'm thinking about getting a barn or whatever, those will be more dead because our customer, once winter sets, their particular we're at is more wet, right? It's not like that nice Alberta cold where it's frozen and you can still deal with things. So it gets muddy. So people kind of give up. They're like, I'm, I can't get the product this year. Like once December rolls around, like this time of year, Everyone's kind of going into holiday coma. Beginning of January starts really slow. And so we use that November time when all the other businesses are running promotions for Black Friday. We're kind of like, well, we don't need immediate sales, but we use it as a pipeline filler for the future. And that has been really good for us because quarter one's usually slow and the guys are worried about work in the shop and whatever. So do you take a down payment on that or is that just a promise that they want in the future? We usually take some form of payment like you like like you we do half down and half before it delivers but i think in that instance it'll be just it won't be like fifty dollars i mean maybe a thousand dollars or eight hundred dollars but i i can't recall totally what we do but i think we do take a bit of money i i just can't say for certain to be honest anyway we we've tried to do that to offset the seasonality of things 
so another thing that we've noticed in the marketing is I used to think like, I have this hilarious story, which our customers are different than yours, but we literally doubled the price of our product in 2019. Craigslist or like Kijiji was where a lot of our customers came from, which we've kind of stopped using it because we think it draws the wrong customer. But a Craigslist, we don't use Kijiji, but it's an equivalent. So we're using that and we had like a 10 by 24 shed and it was like listed at $3,200 or something and shipping extra. And so... This guy was telling me, you need to change your model. You have to double your prices, say shipping's included, whatever, whatever. Um, he's like, you're not charging enough. And so, of course, I'd read some books. Like, when you don't charge enough, people assume that it's a bad product. It's like staying at a hotel. If it's a $50 hotel, it's like, would you take your family there? Eh, might be in a bad neighborhood. Like, you judge based on the price, right? $150, that's probably better. And so, he, you know, that principle was kind of, it was really nerve-wracking, but we increased the prices. And we had a lady call, and she said... So, so our, our new strategy was, this is the price, free delivery for 150 miles or whatever. And she called and she said, I'm ordering right now. You guys have been charging delivery. Like we had sent her quotes and she's like, it's free delivery, I'm buying. And she was paying more money. Her original quote was like $4,300 and she was now paying $6,000 that she was buying. And I thought, well, this lady isn't very smart. And then I actually read a book, I forget what it was. It was a marketing book. Maybe it'll come to me, but anyway... The fellow said, he's like, since the 40s or 60s, we started becoming extraordinarily good at psychology and marketing and branding. And come, and this book was written in the 80s. And he said that people aren't actually stupid. It's just that the market is over-communicated. And you just have so much information for products to buy that you kind of shut down. And you're just like, I, I can't think about this anymore. I got I got my own work to do. I got my domestic life to take care of. So you need to differentiate yourself. And what I realized is that lady, she, for whatever reason, wasn't committing to the math or figuring out the price. She just needed a call to buy. And that free delivery became that for her, which was super fascinating. Because at first I was like, this lady is so silly. But so we've started to realize we don't really like to run sales. We sort of have, but we do like to run something that catches people's attention. Like here's some more delivery miles or, and that tells them, okay, this is my time. I've wanted this. I've been concerned about when to buy. This tells me now when to buy, just fascinating. And so that's why we use the Black Friday because people are expecting you to promote something for Black Friday, give a deal or whatever. And so we use that to help our seasonality. Anyway, sorry, that was a long way of talking about the seasonality, but it's just an interesting thing. You deal with the seasonality issue too. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess, I guess I was wrong. I did visit your shop probably in 2018 because now I'm remembering the so that was after we started building but I we we were living in the states at that point but I remember your big hole in the wall where you could roll a whole 30 foot some stick of pipe into the shop and I was like oh wow that's incredible actually funny enough we weren't able to cut a hole in our wall (laughs) like that to roll pipe in so and I know you feed your into your CNC a little differently but we actually built, uh, it was something I was, I'm still really proud of this. It's like one of my innovations in the shop because I really don't think of myself as that innovative. But we built a pipe trolley. So it's got three axles on it. And we just took a hub and wheel assembly off of, we have an auto wrecker next door. And um, we built this big pipe rack that's the same elevation as our CNC. And so it's got these six tires. We load it up with whatever, 20, 30 sticks. And then we just roll it in to the shop lengthwise through a, overhead door and then the CNC sitting there and we yeah 
we just roll the pipe off. We have little extensions that extend out of the rack and they roll on gently onto the onto the rack. So anyway, that was kind of I don't know if your setup inspired that, but I find that part of production, like material handling, can be so time consuming. You can say, oh, we built the product super fast, but getting it in and out of the facility efficiently is almost just as important. So I always find that sort of yeah, thing really interesting. Be, yeah, that's the one thing I enjoy looking at other people and how they've done it and, and what we could do different. Yesterday, I walked to the shop and uh, there's one dig and there was a piece of angle iron on it that didn't make any sense to me. So I just asked, what, what's that piece of angle iron for? And it, this is a, about a six or eight foot pipe that has three large flanges around it. And he says, oh, that's just to set the pipe on and then to just spin it around while you weld it. Well, that piece of angle iron was about four inches long and you've got a six foot or eight foot long pipe. Well, I said, what about a few rollers? So save a bit of time. I didn't think much of anything. And then uh, later in the day, I walked to the shop and here they had built a few rollers. And so just no more balancing that pipe on a small piece of angle iron. They just set it in the rollers and it was two inches or maybe six inches away from the other jig where they were actually putting the flanges on. And each person has their own ideas. And uh, if it if it speeds them up, to me, it lends enthusiasm to the person working if they can come up with some of these ideas. Yeah, there's kind of that the book, the Toyota way or kind of the start of the lean manufacturing. That's like their whole principle is like everyone's role is to improve something, you, you know, to make something more efficient. I think I find that very rewarding when you do increase efficiencies for especially the long term. It's very fun. I mean, maybe that's kind of a guy thing. <laughs> very, very interesting to our brains. Well, I don't think I should take any more of your time, Bruce. I uh, really appreciate you chatting with me. I think uh, I talked with someone else. Something I might do in the future with this is, you know, you have challenges in a business and sometimes you need to talk to another business owner because they understand. And so he, this person who recommended me, he said, you should use that as a topic and a reason to talk to someone. So if you think of someone that like, hey, they maybe have dealt with this, it's like that should be the topic for the podcast because I've had conversations with people and they're like, that should have been recorded because probably lots of people have had that problem or, you know, whatever, come across that circumstance. And so that's something that I thought was a very interesting suggestion. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a good idea. When we were struggling through COVID and, uh, you know, just a few issues we had, I uh, was thinking of reaching out to some different business owners that were, you know, older than me and larger businesses and getting some advice. And I found one person he was already retired, but still president of this association or that one. And he was well into knowing what business was like. And he was happy to talk to me a handful of times. And I, he didn't tell me anything so new or anything so exciting or so great. But every time I got off the phone with him, it gave me courage to try a little bit harder to get through this hard time. And I kind of said that, that that's, if that's all I got from him, it was well worth it. Right. Right. It is true. You do usually come away with like a more a positive outlook. And I actually, there's something I struggle a bit with, and I don't know if you do, but just the psychology of being a business owner, kind of like the depression's coming at any time. Like you're just kind of always in concerned mode. And I, I listened to an interview of the guy that started Papa John's and the guys interviewing were, were young guys and he had these, you know, billions of dollars in revenue in that restaurant. And um, they're like, how do you, like, so many costs and so many, like, how do you not let it get to you? And he's like, when I was younger, it it did. And he's like, I've made a conscious decision to um, essentially 
choose whether I look at all the potential downside or I can look at all the potential good. And so he's like, you live in a different space when you do that. And I've found that to be super helpful. Like you can dwell on like for me, I'm like, oh, people are going to stop buying the product tomorrow and you know, all these different things. It's like, or you could look at, you're going to acquire more customers and how to get more customers and, you know, or if you need to develop new product or whatever. And that that's, that's been kind of helpful to think about that anyway. So you're <laughs> not always in like, oh, it's going to be bad soon type of thing. Yeah. Anyway, well, I appreciate it. I'll let you go. 